everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 108 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about French Kiss on your All You Bastards Know Each Other podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This week, we are joined by podcaster extraordinaire Lonnie Diane Rich. Lonnie is the founder of Chipperish Media, where you can find amazing podcasts like Still Pretty and Still Dead about the Buffyverse, Listen Up A-Holes about the MCU, and Metaphors Be With You about Star Wars. She's also a New York Times bestselling author of women's fiction, and she teaches about storytelling at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. If you've been listening for a while, you've heard her on the show before when we did Blech. When we did When Harry Met Sally. So welcome back, Lonnie. And I am so glad that we can talk about another one of your favorites. Hi, thank you so much, you guys, for having me on the show. It is always fun to talk to you. And French Kiss, of course, one of my favorite romantic comedies. I think it is very possibly the best romantic comedy ever made. Um, mm. So I'm very excited to be able to talk about that with you guys. Thank you so much. High praise. Did, did you see it when it first came out? <laughs> um, No, I don't think I saw it until some years later. It didn't make a splash and it wasn't like highly regarded or it was just like another Meg Ryan romantic comedy, I think, at the time. But then later when it was released on DVD, um, I went through, of course, a Meg Ryan, you know, thing, like as everybody does, you just collect mm-hmm. everything. And, um, and I watched it and I loved it. And then it was one of those things that like the more I watched it, the more I appreciated it, especially as I got into writing romantic comedies, you know, in, in novel form. Um, but there are some things about romantic comedies that that tend to bug me a little bit. And I think that there's a really good reason why a lot of people kind of look down on romantic comedies in general, because sometimes we fall back on certain things. It's like, if you have two hot leads, and eventually they kiss, it's a romantic comedy. And nobody cares about like building the relationship or making it work or kind of like gradually, you know, finding out how these people are falling in love, which is how romance of any kind, you know, be it comedy or, or otherwise, should absolutely work. But it usually defaults to, you know, I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together. And that's mm. not interesting, you know. So I really like the way that they handle these characters in this movie and, you know, and worked the relationship in and gradually moved it. Um, it was really fun. You're very excited to talk about this, aren't you? We can I just am. hear it coming through. It's I wonderful. Am. I love this movie. <laughs> Um, Mandy, oh, it's going to be a hard one. You hate romantic comedies. You hate Meg Ryan. All of this. <laughs> How come you've never seen this film? All I can come up with is that maybe when I was 13, I was prejudiced against the French. I mean, I really don't know. Like, this is a Meg Ryan rom-com. How on earth have I never seen it? It just makes no sense. It boggles the mind. Good. <laughs> so as opposed to now where you're just prejudiced against all Europeans, everyone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. If you're from Europe, I just okay. absolutely do not like you, Matthew. <laughs> right. A bit of background on this. French Kiss is a 1995 romantic comedy directed by Laurence Castan and written by Adam Brooks. It stars Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein. The film received mixed reviews from critics, but performed well at the box office. It was the highest grossing film on the week it was released, which displaced another big rom-com, While You Were Sleeping. And two weeks later, it was displaced when Ryan's co-star from When Harry Met Sally would release his own French-themed romantic comedy, Forget Paris. I don't think I've ever heard of that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think I saw that movie. I have absolutely no memory of it at all. But it it wasn't as good as French Kiss. I'll bet. (laughs) Well, it didn't have Meg Ryan, so... It doesn't have Meg Ryan. And doesn't have Kevin Klein either. Kevin Klein is kind of fantastic. <laughs> Billy Crystal, or I think he was producer, so that's why it was him, but he did a whole thing where he um, ended up using a legal process to force French Kiss to change its name to French Kiss. Oh, really? Uh, there, there was a whole story that it was going to be named uh, something funny... After <laughs> it was going to be called Paris Match, which is a play on the name of a French news magazine. Oh. However, Billy Crystal challenged it with the MPAA as being too close to his own Paris set romantic comedy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> French Kiss is Bad a blood title. with Harry and Sally. Mm. God. I prefer French Kiss. It's a better title. It's a bit difficult to Google, though. Um, it is. It is. It's yeah. a dangerous Googling. You got to have the safe search on. Yeah. I've had to, like, you know, plus film on every search. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, so there was another movie that was actually called French Kisses. Oh, yeah? Be soon. And that one is apparently more 
widely available. I actually think it came out last year, which is probably why it's more widely available. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that one was always at the top of my searches, even Mm -hmm. when I was searching for like on Roku and Amazon searching for French Kiss. I kept getting French Kisses. Wow. All right. Well, for those of you who have not seen French Kiss, although I doubt anybody is quite as inept at that as I am on this one, (laughs) a woman flies to France to confront her straying fiance, but gets into trouble when the charming crook seated next to her uses her for smuggling. Straight from IMDb, so you know it's just yes. kind of there, but not quite right. I, I think it's better than a lot we've seen. Yeah, like yeah, that is largely the the, the setup for the plot. Sure. Hmm. Yeah, but it leaves out a lot of the heart of the movie. I think. Yeah, <laughs> which I guess definitely. you're gonna not get too much heart when it's a one sentence synopsis, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Um, how were you both able to watch it? Where's it available in the US? Well, I actually own the DVD ah. because because it's French Kiss and it's me, and that's just how that works. <laughs> so, um, so I have this DVD. I have had it forever. I watch it at least once a year. So I had it right handy, ready to watch. That's actually really good because this movie is available nowhere in the states without getting the DVD. Really? Oh, I it's didn't not on that. Amazon. You can't even rent it on Amazon. Like oh. it just says, this title is unavailable. That's tragic. See, it falls in that space, though, because it was made in 1995, you know. So a lot of the um, the stuff that was made kind of like before DVDs really, you know, became a thing, definitely before streaming became a thing, didn't necessarily have all the rights covered. So if mm-hmm. there's music and they can't get the rights to do it in streaming, then they just can't put it out. Yeah. So it was a little bit disappointing that mm-hmm. I could find it nowhere without getting the DVD, but that's okay because yeah. hey, now I have a new addition to my collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad, and I hope that you um, actually enjoy the movie enough that it's worth having it on DVD because it's kind of my fault that you have it. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that in a little while, won't we? <laughs> How about you, Matthew? Is it available in the UK? Yeah, it's not. It's got pretty much the same thing that no one has it except on amazon prime video it's available through the mgm channel okay so i added the channel and watched it through that and it turns out that that channel's actually got a lot of really good stuff uh fruitvale station the adventures of buckaroo banzai high spirits if anyone's ever seen a terrible terrible film but a terrible (laughs) terrible terrible film that everyone saw in their like around about age 10 or something around here (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it was quite exciting to find them Cool. Hmm. The director and our two stars have been in quite a few things. Mandy, your your experience of Lawrence Kasdan, Meg Ryan, Kevin Klein. So I looked at Lawrence Kasdan's filmography, and while he directed this, I'm actually most familiar with him as a writer. He wrote Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. He also wrote Raiders in the Lost Ark and, oddly enough, The Bodyguard. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. Um, So I was actually surprised by that because I wasn't familiar with his name. Right. But when I saw the list of movies he's worked on, it's like, that's a lot of really, like, big hitting movies. Mm. Yeah, Lawrence Kasdan is pretty serious. Mm. Meg Ryan, I remember seeing Sleepless in Seattle when I was a kid, and I think I thought it was really boring at the time. (laughs) And so I didn't fall in love with America's Sweetheart until she did You've Got Mail. Mm -hmm. I know we previously talked about her when we did When Harry Met Sally with you, Lonnie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there are a surprising amount of movies in her filmography that I haven't yet seen, but I really want to. I am not sure that there's a Meg Ryan movie I haven't seen. Well, no, there are a couple. But yeah, but like most of them, all the romantic comedies, I think I've pretty much seen. <laughs> yeah, but she went and did like this whole trying to get away from romantic comedy yes. thing for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think most of those I haven't seen. Yeah, I haven't seen it, those either. There's like a boxing movie <laughs> yes. that she did and, and some other stuff. And they sound interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious about them. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to imagine Meg Ryan in any other role than the romantic lead in a rom-com. Yeah, she's kind of made to do that. You know, I mean, she has this really kind of like fun, quirky, light style to her that mm-hmm. leads her, like lends her really well to, I think, comedic ventures. You know, um, I don't think I've seen her in like real hard drama. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm definitely a fan of her in romantic comedies. And, and the poor thing, she just wants to do something different. I mean, can you imagine being yeah. stuck in the same thing all the time? I mean, that's got to get old for her. So I feel bad for her, but I really like her in the romantic comedies. Yeah. Sorry, I was looking at, there was a movie that I thought she was in that was really, really depressing, but I don't think it was her. So Well, there was Leaving Las Vegas. 
Haven't seen it. Yeah, that was, um, I haven't seen it either, but I've heard enough about it. It was with Nicolas Cage. It was about like alcoholics and mm. it sounds just dreadful. Like not necessarily bad dreadful, but like horrible, sad, terrible experience watching it dreadful. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was thinking about, so there's a Robert De Niro movie called Everybody's Fine. Mm-hmm. It's kind of presented as sort of a family drama slash rom-com movie, but it's Drew Barrymore and um, Kate Beckinsale, not Meg Ryan, who's in it. Side note, that's a really terrible, depressing movie. I mm-hmm. do not recommend it. Okay. <laughs> like seriously, the most depressing movie I've ever seen in my life, which is saying a lot. Right. Yep. Okay, moving on. So Kevin Klein, this again is not the first time we've seen him on the show. We recently did Hunchback of Notre Dame when we did our Disney month back in November. So he voiced Phoebus. And, you know, like I talked about back then, I'm familiar with his name and his face. But when I look at his filmography, there's not a ton there that I've actually seen. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why I'm familiar with him unless he's just one of those. I mean, he's pretty famous. So I guess I have just absorbed it. Yeah, well, he's kind of everywhere. I mean, he was really everywhere for a while. I think probably most well-known for A Fish Called Wanda. Have you seen that? I haven't. Oh, you guys need to do that. Okay. <laughs> I feel like that was a movie I wasn't allowed to watch when I was a kid. My grandma Entirely had possible. it. She had yeah. the VHS in her collection. And I remember always being drawn to it because it's just such a strange title, especially when you're like eight. It is. I can I can see why your parents wouldn't let you watch it at eight, but I think that you're old enough to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's just why it, it, mm-hmm. it never came up. I don't think I knew he was in that. Yeah. So that's interesting. We might have to add that to the list, Matthew. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Kazdan and Klein, I think they made something like five films together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will see them together in a couple of weeks uh, in another film. And in fact, Kazdan's children have gone on to be directors and writers themselves. Um, his son, I want to say Jake, let's just double check this. Jake Kazdan, uh, made, made a film called Orange County, which stars, um, Kevin Klein. No, it doesn't star Mm -hmm. Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein is in it in a role. Um, and, and he does pretty much the same role in a film called Definitely Maybe, which was written and directed by the guy who wrote French Kiss. It's actually, Definitely Maybe is a pretty good movie too. It's oh. one of those small release movies, you know, the one with Ryan Reynolds, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually really pretty good. Definitely maybe it's wonderful. Yeah. I love that film. Yeah. Mostly anything with Isla Fisher, because she is hilarious. Yeah, she's really wonderful. Mm. Um, but yeah, there seems to be this group of them who just kind of make films together. Mm-hmm. And and solid films. So uh, names to keep an eye out for. Okay. Right. Do we need to do experience of similar material? I feel like we just listed a lot of it. Yeah, we did. And we, we've done some other rom-coms recently, yeah. so I think we're probably pretty good on that front. Okay. So having now seen French Kiss, did you enjoy it? I did, actually. I, I went into it with like the highest of expectations because it's a 90s rom-com with Meg Ryan in it, so how <laughs> right. could I not like it? But if you read my notes, I suddenly got to this point where I wasn't sure I was going to. But by the end, I had absolutely fallen in love with it. Okay. And it's funny how, like, serendipitous life can be. Lonnie, I just started listening to How Story Works over again. Oh, yeah. I, I never actually finished it. And so I was like, I need to go back to the beginning. And mm-hmm. right when I got pick, to... Pick up that narrative abs- and follow through the, the cliffhangers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because we all know what a big fan I am of cliffhangers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so when I got to episode two, you talked about how you can't really know what a story means until it's over. Yeah. And that is exactly, exactly how I feel about this one. I think you said, um, there are stories which when you're in the middle of them, you're rolling your eyes, wondering what is this nonsense? And then a final movement comes in and pulls it all together and suddenly you get it. Yep. And that absolutely describes my experience with this movie. And I think you can see that if you do read through my (laughs) thoughts, Doc. Like there was a point where I was just like, I, I, what is happening? Like, why, why? And then at the end, I was like, I was going to be so mad if they didn't give me that flashback or flash forward. You know, I was there. Yeah. No, I can definitely understand that. And I think that, um, you know, I've seen French Kiss so much now that I never go into it with that first experience. But like, 
I, I, I think I remember almost feeling the same way when I watched this movie for the first time that I was like, and, and part of it comes from not trusting romantic comedies because they have not earned our trust in general for a lot of the reasons, you know, discussed. Um, and so when you're watching this movie, it's hard to trust that it's going to it's going to pull it through right, that it's not going to resort to like you know, like stupid misunderstanding based conflict or, you know, things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you finally get through it at the end, it all comes together in a way that's really lovely. And um, so for me, whenever I watch it, um, I go through this whole like, you know, analytical thing, like, you know, where is the central narrative conflict and how is that escalating and how are these things working? Because I can't shut that part of my my brain off. Um, but because I'm looking at it, you know, like in this very like highly critical space and not critical as in looking for fault, but critical as in just thinking critically, like, why is that there? What does that mean? You know, um, I, I find myself like enjoying it even more as I pick up on kind of like these little things that it does that are just so lovely. Yeah, I think all the way through, it is very solid because they, they're uh, introduced to each other but not set up to be necessarily a couple from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's that point on the train where he's trying to get into the bag and she starts snuggling up to him. That's fine, and I was kind of expecting it to do a turn of, oh, and then she wakes up and they're all embarrassed, but they've had a moment of intimacy. Mm-hmm. But instead, she snogs him. She kisses <laughs> him and kisses him properly. Um <laughs> And that was the bit that, that I think, Mandy, you, was, you were saying about, you know, when you start really questioning it, that for mm-hmm. me was that moment. But then they do start, largely if you ignore that, but they do start being very nice about their different reactions to France and, and being in a different place that's not the city. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of wins you back after that. But there is that moment there of, wait, no, she wouldn't still be asleep, surely. Right. Yes. Well, she says Charlie, right? Because she thinks mm. she's kissing Charlie. But the thing that I actually kind of like about that moment, um, even though you really have to like suspend your disbelief yeah. very much for it, there's a couple of places in this movie where you have to be like, all right, fine, you know, whatever, I'm in, you know. <laughs> um, but but right before that, they had that conversation about she was saying, you know, when you meet somebody and you just know and have you and never had that experience. And he's like, if I did, I certainly would admit it, you know. And then when she kisses him and thinks she's char- he's Charlie, um, uh, you know, supposedly in this dream space that she's in, you know, mm-hmm. um, he pulls back from that. And the look on his face is like he's just been hit. She's like, it wasn't lightning or a thunderclap, you know, when she's talking about that feeling with Charlie. But for him, it looks like lightning and a thunderclap just hit him. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. I-, I like that they play that subtly. You know, without going too far, I like that he's a little bit, you know, kind of different with her from that point on. And yet um, they don't go overboard with that. And they never reference it again. He never tells her, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's never a moment where um, he's demanding something from her because that moment and he has these feelings and there isn't that sense of his like entitlement to her. He clearly wants her and likes her, but he's also clearly uncomfortable with the fact that he wants her and likes her and would prefer not to feel that way. So you see him working through all of that internal conflict as we're moving through this piece. And it's so like nicely and subtly done. I love it. Listening to you talk about it just makes me smile. <laughs> I love it when people gush about the things that they love. It's great. I know. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, Lonnie, I have a question for you then. Yes. You are our resident storytelling slash movie expert. So mm-hmm. can you tell me what makes a rom-com a rom-com? Because usually when I think of rom-com, I think that there's this very active romance happening on the screen the entire mm-hmm. movie that ends with living happily ever after, after some sort of conflict has driven the two apart and then they come back together. Yes. That is not the formula for this movie. No. There is really very little romance in this movie until the end. So... (laughs) Well, see, I would disagree with you. I think the whole movie is wildly romantic. And uh, the reason why I feel that way, like, first of all, this whole, like, you know, um, we have this couple... In the beginning, you know, they're instantly attracted, but, you know, he's so annoying and she's so annoying. And, you know, they it, it's all like falsely constructed, which I think is why romantic comedies get such a bad rap. So we have this, you know, they they like each other. You know, they're obviously attracted to each other. There's this chemistry. 
but they they they're really annoying to each other like they're opposites or whatever and um and so that is the romantic conflict and then we have some kind of you know misunderstanding or you know something that uh, in the middle of the movie that breaks them apart and then they have to get back together nine times out of ten with somebody running through a stupid airport to stop a plane whatever (laughs) you know um so the thing that I like about French Kiss and why I would argue that it is actually what all romantic comedies should be is that it rather than I'm hot, you're hot, you know, and, and then but you're so annoying. And so I'm going to like they, they build this kind of like false conflict in. We have this um, situation in which they are, uh, she is all focused on Charlie and getting Charlie back. And that is where her romantic focus is. Not to mention the fact that he's a thief, that he, you know, smuggled an illegal plant and a stolen necklace in her bag. That he, you know, like all of these things that he did don't really recommend him to her as a potential romantic partner, especially because... She does have this, you know, vision of her life that is very safe, where she doesn't take risks. And Kevin Klein basically has risk tattooed on his forehead. Like, this is a high risk Mm -hmm. guy, you know, and that's not who she is, at least at at this point. That's part of what the, the movie does. But because they are then not forced into this really contrived romantic space, they actually get to know each other. Um, and they bond and they understand each other and, um, and he is, you know, trying to get her to understand that Charlie has done all these terrible things to her, you know, and that she shouldn't be begging for him back. But instead of trying to break up, you know, or separate her from Charlie, he's pushing her toward Charlie. He's trying to help her get what she wants or what she thinks she wants at that point. Um, So we have them kind of working together. And I also love the fact that we have this moment where um, they're on the train and he says, do I look like the kind of guy? And she's like, you look like the kind of guy who would offer a girl a ride and then steal a car to give it to her. You look like the kind of guy who steals the little bottles on the of alcohol on the plane. You look like the kind of guy, you know, she goes through this whole thing about all the things that he did, things that we didn't know that she necessarily had picked up on, but she did. So mm-hmm. we see that she's completely onto him, that she knows exactly who he is, you know, um, and that they're really honest with each other. So instead of this like contrived romantic conflict, which happens a lot in romances because we have to resolve it, right? If you have a conflict that is insurmountable, you know, then then you can't get them together. Then she's a Montague, he's a Capulet. Nothing they say is ever going to make her not a Capulet, right? You know, um, so if we have them where they have a romantic conflict they can't overcome, then we can't have the happy ending at the end. But if we give them real romantic conflict, then we have to actually find a way to overcome that romantic conflict. And that's hard. So most romantic comedies go for the really easy, oh, he's just so annoying, she's so annoying, you know, and that's something that is so easily overcome. But it doesn't feel real. And here we have a conflict for her in that she's she thinks she wants Charlie. She thinks she wants that safe life that she spent her entire life trying to create, right? And he is um, very uncomfortable with the idea of having deep feelings for anyone, you know? Um, And I think that that for him is just generally his, like, his internal conflict with this. Not to mention the fact that he is helping her get Charlie back. So having deep feelings for somebody while you're in the middle of trying to help them, you know, reclaim their, you know, strained fiance, um, I think actually adds a genuine level of romantic conflict. And it isn't until she can really realize that Charlie isn't what she wants, you know, um, that she wants the stone cottage, which we have in the beginning, which I love. We have in the beginning before any of this happened that she imagines this stone cottage when she's trying to like, you know, be able to go on the plane and she's in the in the test plane area um think about your stone cottage and then when they go to france and she's in reality there's the stone cottage that she wants i'm just somebody who wants to plant roots and let them grow you know so we have all of this stuff where she actually is running an internal conflict where she thinks she wants something that she doesn't really want or that isn't best for her. And she has to grow enough to realize that's not what she wants. So um, because of this kind of complicated, you know, mishmash of all these conflicts, external and internal, um, we have the space for this romance to kind of grow and breathe without being textually acknowledged until the end, you know. Um, so I think that it is 
wildly romantic. I think that that is the very heart and soul of romance is people getting to know each other and realizing they want the same things and they are actually good together. They're a good team. Um, when they start working together, um, she is fantastic, you know? Um, so for all of those reasons, I would actually argue that all the other rom-coms are bullshit and this one is legit. Oh, I'm sorry. I did it. I say bullshit on your... Yes. You okay, can. sorry. <laughs> I think it's interesting because pretty early on in my notes, I was trying to really figure out what this movie was going to be about. And my expectation was rom-com. And so I was trying really hard to fit this movie into the rom-com formula that I'm used to. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so up front, I was thinking, okay, so here's what's going to happen. He's going to get her to loosen up. She's going to get him to follow some rules. And then they're going to live happily ever after. Right. But then I was like, I really can't see that being what happens in this movie. And so I was really confused because it that's really not how these characters felt like they were going to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's not how they grew. I mean, sort of a little bit, but not really. Yeah. It, this this movie wasn't about the characters changing each other, yes. which is what happens in a lot of rom-coms is you've got right. the characters love, quote unquote, love each other so much that they both have to fundamentally change who they are to make the other person happy. And only then can they live happily ever after. And I really like that this movie breaks that tradition. Yeah, that's and a terrible message. It's crazy that this movie happened in 1995, and most of my rom-com experience comes after 1995, and I I wish that this movie had kind of set that tone moving forward for other filmmakers to follow. Yeah, that would have been really wonderful, because the thing is that he's already in the process of changing, right? I mean, granted, you know, he stole the vine, smuggled it into France, and stole the necklace, but he did it so that he could start a life you know, um, and, and, and buy that land and have mm -hmm. a winery and live a legit existence, right? right? So he's already in the process of changing himself. She doesn't change him. He's in that process, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and she is in the process of changing herself, you know, but it isn't until she chases after Charlie and she's in that moment with him, you know, like, what is it? Why are you now, you know, so into this new Kate, you know, that you're going to dump your new girlfriend for your old one? Like, um, she has that realization that this isn't what she wants and that she deserves something better than that. Um, but it isn't until she goes through this whole experience and it's not about him. He's there when it happens, but she doesn't do it for him or because right. of him. She does it because this is who she is. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, I love the way that they do it. I wish that this had changed the way that romantic comedies are made. Um, but in reality, um, be, if a movie makes money, it, there's, no motivation for the people who are making those movies to change them. And romantic right. comedies have kind of fallen into this pattern um, of like this really poor storytelling pattern. And I think that's why romantic comedies get such a bad rap. Mm -hmm. um, but this, I think, is this is, again, why I think this is the best romantic comedy ever made. I think that this is the model that people really should follow when they're writing romances. It's not about the you know like the big romantic moments and the chase through the airport um and it's not about like the the sex or the you know chemistry or the slap slap kiss of it you know um it's that you've got two people who are who are growing together because that's what they she needs to change for her and he needs to change for him and it just so happens that the both of them are changing into people who need each other but we don't right. even get that until the end right mm -hmm. This, I like that this movie kind of throws a little bit of shade at that traditional fairy yeah. tale relationship that you would normally get in a rom-com um, right after they first meet and they're having that whole conversation about love and the thunderclap and lightning. She asks him, do you believe in love, the kind that lasts forever? And of course, he throws out that the funny answer, I loved my mother, you know, <laughs> and so she, then she keeps egging him on. And his response is, it is the question of a little girl who believes in fairy tales. Yes. And my immediate response, like my knee jerk response to that was, God, I hate this guy because <laughs> I am a little girl who believes in fairy tales, apparently. <laughs> oh, I love that response from him because I think that it is. I think that it is that it, love, real love is so much more complex than that. It's oh, so much more complicated than that, you know, um, and I like that. But I also like that right after he says that to her. He has that experience mm -hmm. of of starting to really fall in love with this woman. So yeah. it's kind of like they're both right in a way. 
I, I think they are. I think it, it's neither one of them are exactly right. It's some sort of like merging of the yeah. two ideas because yeah. you can have that spectacular fireworks feeling and mm-hmm. have that be real love and not just this feeling in the moment. Right. But at the same time, love is more than an emotion. Mm-hmm. And you never get that in rom-coms. Yeah, no, you don't. Rom-coms are all about the, you know, that moment when they get together. And after they get together, it's boring. Happily ever after. There's nothing more boring than happily ever after. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yep. The the film does a, a lot of, uh, I think, very good work to make him a good guy. As mm-hmm. much as he's a thief and a criminal, he's yes. caring for the plant. We don't see any consequences for the necklace. We don't see who that's been stolen from, except it does get wrapped up in a... Mm, just legal way maybe um but also we hear from jean reno he was a good guy in the past he saved his life yeah um the the film wants us to know okay we're giving you a bad guy but he's actually nice you can root for him it's okay Mm -hmm. i I, I like that but it does have to do that work because otherwise you'd be like oh okay and then the fact at the end he when you have that that two piece of the them going to bed with Juliet and Charlie, mm-hmm. and he he says uh, Kate to yes. Juliet. So it's like, oh, he doesn't even fall for the goddess. He's such a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Kevin Klein was the perfect person to play this kind of role because yeah. only he could bring that sort of affable goofiness to a con man to mm-hmm. make you love him. If that makes sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, because the thing is that he is a con man. Like, and he did steal this necklace and he stole this fine. And he brought it into the country illegally, which granted, when you think about like, oh, no, he smuggled a vine. But like, you know, there are diseases and things that right. can cause like there's a reason why those laws exist, you know. And um, so you have him and he's kind of like this charming rogue character. But I think it's because he is in transition that this is the last thing he's going to do you know Mm -hmm. and then he does this thing and it's not right and he puts her at tremendous risk by putting it in her bag and all of these things like um he he's doing it in service of of being different of changing that part of himself and i think that because he's already in progress with that transition it's we can forgive it a little bit more yeah definitely the the part was meant to have gone to Gerard Depardieu. Oh, so it was it was going to be an actual Frenchman playing it, but he wasn't available, so they then got Kevin Klein, which as I said before, like he and Lawrence Kasdan have worked together a lot, so he knew his capability. But I also wonder if it was there were no other French actors who could have been sold in the States in the same way. Yeah, I don't know. Time. I'm interested though, because like is his French accent good? Like I don't know. From the perspective of a French person, I'd have to ask a French person. I don't know any at the moment. But um, uh, I, I'm interested because it seems like a really genuine, it's not this, oh, ho, ho, like, you know, really cheesy kind of French accent mm. that you're used to, like the terrible French accent. It sounds like genuine to me. From what I read, there, there was a, I think it was a review, but just something from a French magazine that said it, it, the accent is good and the language is good, except the way he speaks English it's clearly he's an Englishman who's learned a French language. Oh, yeah. Rather mm-hmm. than speaking with the, the sort of the French phrasing, mm-hmm. as it were. Something but, about but the word to, order. Yeah. 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 So, but it, it it is very good. He does play the part very well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think there were probably no other French actors who could have been um, sold in the US. Yeah. Speaking of Kevin Klein, did you guys know that there is such a thing as the Kevin Klein mustache principle? I did not know that. (laughs) So this was coined by Roger Ebert actually in his review for French Kiss, and it's apparently been quoted many, many times. And this is a principle that observes that Klein always wears facial hair when playing goofballs, such as Luke, Mm -hmm. but shaves for serious roles. Interesting. I, I I found that absolutely hilarious because... The thing that bothered me the most about this movie up front was the mustache because I'm used to seeing Kevin Klein clean shaven. And oh. so the hair and the mustache kind of threw me out just a little bit. But then it was enough to help me really embrace the character because mm-hmm. it was so different from what I'm accustomed to from him. And then when I read what Ebert said, it just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> 
I do like his, uh, you know, the the sort of dirty stubble he starts off with, which he doesn't really get rid of for most of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, he he does feel weather worn. Yes, <laughs> and it, it it suits the character very much. It suits him both, you know, as a city criminal. It suits him as a kind of farmer running the vineyard. Yeah, absolutely. So, Matthew, whenever you were doing some reading about his accent and stuff, did did any of the, like, French kind of reviews of this movie say anything about how the French were portrayed in this movie? Because it feels like it just hits that French stereotype nail really, really hard. And I'm trying to figure out if that's offensive or if it is a stereotype because it's just that's how people are. Yeah, I think there was a comment about you keep expecting someone to cycle past with some garlic and a baguette. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and a blue stripy jumper, that kind of thing. It, you're absolutely right. And the way it then plays when they go out to the farm and the, the style of life on the farm and the way they play when they finally get to the resort out at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, uh, and they do hit the stereotype very hard, but they do it for the Canadians. The fact that the first line the Canadian oh, yeah. guy says is, oh, why don't you have a passport, eh? <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Okay, <laughs> and he's so sweet. Yeah, because all Canadians are so sweet. Exactly, and I, and I feel like they're doing it to Americans by making her big and brash and causing a scene when she wants to cause a scene. Yeah, but I also think that's the way they write Meg Ryan in this sort of film. I think so too. I mean, she's also like incredibly uptight, which I think is mm-hmm. uh, not an ill-placed American stereotype. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, they they work very hard at all of the stereotypes in it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, good. It's not just me then. So part of this movie is absolutely the stuff that my nightmares are made of. And I'm <laughs> betting nobody expected that to come out of my mouth about mm-hmm. a romantic comedy. <laughs> so a significant portion of this movie that actually never gets cleared up is Kate gets stuck in France because her passport gets stolen. And so because she's in the middle of this citizenship transfer between American and becoming a citizen of Canada, she doesn't belong to either country. And so she gets stuck in France and nobody will help her. Mm -hmm. And that is just absolutely terrifying to me. (laughs) Terrifying. It's why I don't want to travel globally. Like, Matthew's lucky I went to England to his wedding (laughs) last year because this is just not what Mandy does because things like this might happen. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean i can definitely understand that because that's the kind of thing that like would make me crazy too you know just Mm -hmm. like the the chance the risk of something like that happening um and she wasn't gonna go to france because of that risk until you know he ended up with the goddess and she had to go and take care of things um but yeah it is kind of a nightmare you think about being in a situation like that where you are you know basically on your own in a foreign country you know no money no passport no vitamins right um i mean it's just it's terrible (laughs) so um it's kind of yeah and it is one of those things i guess doesn't really get cleared up except for they're together so i'm guessing that he marries her and makes her french at some point yeah well i couldn't figure out how i mean because she was on a plane getting ready to fly back to canada and i couldn't figure out replaced yeah yeah, so I was trying to figure out if maybe they just forgot to show it and because the cop did have a stack of passports, stolen passports that were recovered and so I was wondering was her passport oh, in there and he just gave it back? Maybe they cut that scene. But yeah, that would make a lot of sense if he had her passport. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, other than that, I I was just thinking I I don't know what I would do in that situation. I yeah. would absolutely melt down. She handled it like a champ. Yeah. No, that's scary. But- it probably helps that she had a French Kevin Klein to help her through it, though. Oh, yeah. No, a French Kevin Klein will get you through a lot. <laughs> and presumably, to go and meet her on the plane, he's bought a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> you guess so. Yeah, he's he's gone to some lengths to get her back at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was also pre-9-11, though. So, although that was in France, so I don't know if they're... Yeah, I don't know how processes change. Yeah, but here, you would have been able to at least get to the gate. I don't know that you could have gotten on the plane, but you yeah. could have gotten to, onto the gate without a ticket. Oh, so maybe there's that, that the, the thing Lani mentioned at the beginning, him going through the airport, convincing everyone, oh, my love, yes. I must go on the plane. See, it's, it's, it's <laughs> <simple> play. <laughs> I'd like Kevin Klein on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Before we jump into favorite moments, I think I'm going to tell you one of my other favorite moments, but I think it's big enough that it deserves part okay. of our, our conversation proper. Mm-hmm. Is so towards the end um, when Luke is kind of teaching her how to act around Charlie to get Charlie back mm-hmm. and what she needs to do and say and, and how she should, you know, act disinterested and, and all of these other things. She has this line where she says, I don't know when to stop pretending. Mm-hmm. And my immediate response to that was obviously when you realize you're not pretending anymore mm-hmm. because that's where this was going. But that's exactly what happened. And I love that that's what happened and that she came to that realization all on her own. Like you said earlier, Lonnie, she changed for herself. She didn't change yeah. for Luke or for Charlie or because of any of these things. She mm-hmm. just realized what was best for her. Yeah. And she was able to do that by herself. And yeah, I think no, that that's really worth nice. noting because you just don't often see the female lead in a movie, in a, particularly a romantic movie, but in yeah. a movie at all, really able to help herself. Yeah, exactly. Without the damsel effect, you mm-hmm. know, where he's, it's his love that rescues, like, you know, it's the love of a man that rescues a woman and the love of a good woman that rescues a bad man and like all that kind of nonsense, which is just actually works against everything that a romantic comedy can be. But I also love that moment when she, uh, she finds them on the beach. Right. And she says, you know, I'm in this whole transitional thing. This is when I took up with Luke and she's playing this whole thing up. And then she says, you know, and I realized that you're that there's no home safe enough. There's no country nice enough, you know, that you just end up having an incredibly boring time in the process and you're just setting yourself up for a fall. And she has that whole line that she's saying as part of this, you know, theater that she's presenting for Charlie and Juliet, like she's just transitioning and she's over it and it's fine, you know. Um, but that actually is where she comes to, you know, she spent mm-hmm. her whole life trying to be safe and there is no safety. Like, so you might as well have some damn fun and not be with a wet fish like Charlie, you know, who, why women right. are fighting over this dolt, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> yep. Oh, Timothy Hutton plays douchebag really, really well. He does. He does do a good douchebag. I liked him in Leverage. I like the character he played in Leverage. Leverage is really good. But outside of Leverage, every time I see Timothy Hutton, I'm always like, ugh. You know, <laughs> he's just that guy. He's like the ugh guy, you know. Yeah, and it, and it feels like what uh, that the, the whole thing of her waking up and embracing and why not do everything blah blah. blah it feels like that's what they're trying to do on the train mm-hmm. with her eating a shed load of cheese. Oh, God. <laughs> but I I I I find it very hard to be sympathetic to her at that point. Cause... Well, if she's lactose intolerant, she should know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And I'm not a big fan of like the humiliation diarrhea scene, which we actually see um, happen a ridiculous Mm. amount of time. Like um, there's a scene in um, Two Weeks Notice with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant where she gets Mm -hmm. diarrhea and it's completely humiliating. Like you hear the sounds of it, like it's this whole horrible thing. We have that scene in Bridesmaids um, where we've got multiple women, you Mm. know, just shitting in the street. It's terrible. And so there is a, a thing that we have in our comedy where we like to humiliate the the heroine for some reason. And I'm not I'm not into that. Um, here we actually do it a little bit better. Um, it's it's like approaching that humiliation thing, but it's actually just the excuse to get them off the train. Um, and then she's not embarrassed by it. She's shouting lactose intolerance. You know, we don't actually live through where we're hearing the horribleness, which is horrible, you know, Um I don't understand why she couldn't take care of it on the train, um, why she had to get off the train, but whatever, it's fine, because they went to his his home, and that was lovely. Um, but uh, but it's, it's one of those things that was like, it's so cringy, just approaching that, and they didn't take it too far, but at the same time, there couldn't be any other excuse to get off the plane, <laughs> or off the yeah. train. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually liked that scene, but I uh-huh. think I only liked it because it reminded me a little bit of the diner scene in When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> just her actions, the 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 yeah. way that she was continuing to shout and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's definitely less fun than the diner scene, but I think yeah. that's exactly why that scene exists. It may well be. Yeah. <laughs> so Mandy, what other things did you like from this? 
Uh, well, we've certainly talked about it a, a, a lot of the things that I like. I think all we've done is gush about this movie at this point. But mm-hmm. um, I, I really like how Luke's character – sorry, Luke. Luke. Not Luke. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> if really? I had had subtitles really? on watching this movie, <laughs> it's hilarious. He falls in love with Kate without expressing any of it in dialogue. Yeah. It's it's his face is just so expressive. Like the moment you were talking about on the train after mm-hmm. um she kisses him in her sleep, you know, th- the look on his face was just so like dumbstruck. Mm-hmm. Like he was having feelings. And then I think um when they were with his family and his, one of his cousins or whoever was like since when are women just your friends and he's like since i met her and i was like yep he's caught feelings yeah (laughs) absolutely and it's just obvious not by what he says but how he looks when he says it or when he's just watching her from across the room and it was really nice Mm -hmm. really really nice and then there was one really funny moment it's probably the corniest moment in the entire movie but when he's trying to catch up with Kate to get on the train with her and his cop friend is trying to get him because he knows he has the necklace and they're chasing him all through the chain- train station, Luke finally makes it onto the train and he just kind of turns around and does that little wave. Yeah. It just cracked me up. And I don't care how corny it was. I liked it. <laughs> well, it was a ge- it was also this gesture of sorry, man. You know, like mm-hmm. they, they like each other. They respect each other. And then when Jean Renault, when we go back to him, he's got this little smile on his face like, oh, you bastard, but I love you. You know, right. um, yeah. I love all of that, that kind of, um, you know, beneficent antagonism between the two of them, that loving antagonism. It's really, yeah. really fun. Yeah. A question for you both. When there are scenes between uh, the cop and Luke, did you have subtitles when they were speaking in French? I did. Ah, I did I not. needed them. <laughs> I I did. There was only one time that there was French spoken that I didn't have subtitles, and I don't even remember when it was. Now I think it was Juliet and Luke talking, mm-hmm. but I can't okay. remember. Yeah, there were a couple of instances where, um, when there was just like a little bit of French, but uh, all the major scenes that were done in French, I had subtitles for. Yeah, ah, my version. Were didn't. you able to pick it up from context? Uh, mostly, I did go and grab the script afterwards just to double check. I hadn't yeah. missed anything fundamental. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I turned subtitles on. The subtitle came up. They speak to each, each other in French. Okay. Like, oh no! Thanks, That's subtitles. Terrible. That's really useful. <laughs> that is terrible. Yeah, you would think that streaming services would be able to get the subtitles right. Mm. Well, no, that was just a person on the job who was like lazy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't even know what they're saying here. I don't care. They don't pay me enough. <laughs> um, Lonnie, are you able to pick any particular things or your favorites from this? Is it all just one big favorite? Oh, God. Well, I mean, I love a lot of it for a lot of the reasons discussed. I think one of my favorite things, though, and it was one that I didn't even pick up on until, I don't know, like the fourth or fifth time I've seen I've seen this movie a lot um fourth or fifth time I saw the movie but the the three beat with the Eiffel Tower I absolutely love that like they're talking in the beginning she would really love to see the Eiffel Tower but she doesn't go you know and then when she goes to France um she wants to see the Eiffel Tower we've got that established she's in the car with Luke they're you know racing to go get her bags back and she's staring at him the Eiffel Tower is behind her in this like extended shot And then she turns her head right at the moment as a bus is passing by and blocking her vision of it, you know. Um, And then there's the time where she's, uh, you know, she's fought with Luke. She's wandering around trying to find the embassy. She can't get a cab. And she's walking down a street at night and the Eiffel Tower is lit up behind her. Um, But she can't see it, you know. Uh, And so she turns around and right at the moment she turns around, all the lights turn off on the Eiffel Tower and it's, it's just black sky for her as far as she can tell um and she has this look on her face like she knows something she knows she's missing something but she's not quite sure what it is you know and then we have the three beat you know because the three beat is you know um is set up a step reestablish and then subvert you know and then at the the last time is when he's on the train with her they're riding out you know to chase charlie down um and she looks out the window he's given her his nonsense right and then she says shh and she looks and we just have this silence while she finally sees the Eiffel Tower. 
you know? And mm-hmm. it seems to me like that is such a transitional thing for her. Like in the moment she can finally, so she's finally at a point where she can actually look around, see where she is and see things that have been invisible to her before. And I think that that's like a sense of this is where she's first beginning to actually really see herself, you know, and, and it's represented visually with the Eiffel Tower. And it is done. I mean, there's so much subtlety in this film that I absolutely love, you know, and I think that it's just so wonderfully done. And then she absolutely draws attention to it. You know, she wants to see the Eiffel Tower. And it isn't until the Eiffel Tower is out of sight that she allows him to talk. And it's mm-hmm. just really cool. Yeah, it was a really nice moment. Mm-hmm. Is that your sort of great moment of subtlety? Are there others like that that we've not picked up on having only seen it a couple of times? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like the fact that, and I think I brought this up before, but that her, um, you know, her dream is the stone cottage and she never talks about that with him, but he happens to have the stone cottage. And then we see at the end that they have that stone cottage together, you know? Um, and I think that that's a really nice kind of moment that Mm. you might not realize, you know, that she wanted, uh, you know, unless you're really super paying attention at the beginning. Um, but there's like lots of stuff, um, you know, like throughout this movie that every time I watch it, I, I pick up on something a little different. Like the stone cottage is something I saw this time that I hadn't really mm. thought about that deeply before, except that it's a lovely stone cottage who wouldn't want that, you know? Um, but the fact that that was actually the thing that she closed her eyes and, and, you know, imagined in order to be able to stay calm on the, on the, you know, pseudo plane on the fake plane. Um, I thought that was really, really cool. And so there's like little things like that, that just kind of, you know, you just kind of pick up on, um, after you watch it like 45 times the way that <laughs> <laughs> the phrasing they use when they they introduce the cottage he wants to buy he has yeah. a, he has a line about um oh yeah the person who owns that is no longer here or no longer cares or something and it just in another film i would expect it to be him yeah mm-hmm. but they don't i did expect yeah, it to be it, him <laughs> it, it, it never quite delivers anything but it feels like again there's another plot of who this person is or, or mm-hmm. what the story is there yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just abandoned, mm. you know, and then they can make it into anything they want. True. But it's just there waiting for somebody to move in the same way that like, you know, who they really are is just waiting for them to discover it, to realize it and then and then, you know, follow it through. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's so great. I love this movie so much. I don't know if I've told you guys that. <laughs> I don't think we quite got that until <laughs> just now. Well, I I play it pretty close <laughs> to the vest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Matthew, what about you? What were your favorite moments? A, a couple of bits did make me laugh out loud uh, through it. We, we mentioned the French stereotypes and mm-hmm. the, I mean, snooty concierge maitre d' type is uh, a trope stereotype unto itself. And to have them be French is even better. I could have a lot more of Meg Ryan and the concierge than we got. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're really good together. They were, yes. <laughs> I, I loved that she tries to bribe him and he just takes the money. Yes. Mercy, I love when she I can help slams you. down on the bell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, he was like, well, sometimes we need to protect our guests from their fiancés. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He is doing his job. Good on yeah, him. He is absolutely doing his job, but he didn't have to be so rude, but it was delightful that he was. <laughs> um, Lani, you mentioned the, the great turn where she, she says, you know, why uh, you really like the new me, but what if the new me is basically the old me? Yeah. Um, and the way she says that, you know, they're together in, in bed and, and she pushes him off and she says, stop. Because he's done this whole thing of it's like someone's turned a light on inside of you. Yeah. And like, I wish it had been me. Mm-hmm. Uh, her line is wonderful. Her delivery is better. She says, why wasn't it you who turned on the light? The big shining Kate light that burns so bright now that you just can't resist dumping your new girlfriend for your old one. And the way she delivers it, she sounds like she's a, a beat poet or she's rapping it. She actually <laughs> yeah. delivers it like verse. I mean, it's it's a solid line in and of itself. Um, you know, it's got some rhyming going on in there. It's got a nice cadence. But she then, it's, she is performing this line. It's wonderful. And it's, it's a great thing to do at a moment of revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved it. I, that, that was a wonderful moment. Um, and then there was one more that I... I I'm going to have to explain a little bit why it appealed so much. Uh, When they're driving, her stuff's been stolen. They're driving across. She asks who's stolen uh, her bag. He says, Bob. And she goes, Bob. And his line is, Bob, like Bob Dylan. Oh, Bob. 
And he looks at him and he goes, we, Bob. So who's this guy who stole my bags? Bob. Bob. Bob Dylan. Oh, Bob. We, Bob. Now, is that a reference to something? Is that... No, I think it's just a reference to how Americans say Bob. Okay. <laughs> so, we were in Florida years and years ago. Um, uh, Kissimmee, I think, so near Orlando. And my dad ne- met one of the neighbors and introduced him to me. And he said, oh, this is Bob. And Bob went, no, no, it's Bob. <laughs> and this this story has lived in infamy across the family because we do not know what he meant. You know, was his, is his name Bob? So it is actually Bob. Is it B-A-H-B? Is it? And now suddenly watching this film, we're like, was was he referencing French Kiss? This very serious guy in a button down and a he had a, a cap on that said Langley across it. It's like, okay, we know where you work. Thank you very much. Um, right. But we can't decide whether it was before or after this film came out. <laughs> So I'm I'm now hoping this like very serious guy from the CIA was referencing French Kiss and none of us picked up on it. <laughs> <laughs> I see, it's funny though because I it, without the subtitles I'm not sure I would have quite gotten the subtlety of the joke they were making because th- at least the subtitles on my version when he said Bob it was spelled B U B and she responded back Bub B U B and he said no Bob, like Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. except he said Bob Dylan. And she said, oh, Bob, Bob, he said. And then he made fun of it, Bob. <laughs> and it's just so, I think it's funny because our American ears heard, he was saying Bob, but mm-hmm. our American ears hear it so much smaller because we draw our words yeah. out. Whether mm-hmm. we're from the South in America or not, we still draw things out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for them to like blatantly call it out like that, I thought was hysterical. Yeah, because <laughs> hearing you both trying to do Bob, you sound like you're from Boston. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's where you go to when you say that. Bob. 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 <laughs> Get in the car, Bob. <laughs> Park the car in the Something. Good. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere. Stuck the landing Pop on that the one. Have it yet. Yeah. I completely messed that one up. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about French Kiss? So I had a slightly strange experience whilst watching this. Um, there was a, a discussion going on because um, Ivan Reitman's son is doing a new Ghostbusters film, and that got announced whilst I was watching this. And I found out about mm-hmm. it because Lawrence Kasdan's son was talking about it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So it made me wonder, if one of the Kasdans went to do a follow-up to French Kiss, what would either of you want it to be? Would you want to see a remake or a sequel or their kids? Oh, I definitely wouldn't want to see their kids. Um uh, you know, once somebody's like had their story, then that's it. I think I'd probably like to see a, a remake, although there isn't much in this that I would necessarily fix. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's probably where I would like to to see um to see them redo. But I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to see it redone because I think it was so good, and there isn't much to fix. And then I would just be like, "Well, that's not Meg Ryan, and that's not Kevin Klein, and then that would be it. And I don't right. know if I'd be able to enjoy it." <laughs> I think I'm the opposite of you. I think I would want it to be a pseudo sequel. Yeah. Where we pick up with Kate and Luke now at the vineyard and we just kind of see that they're fine. They've lived happily ever after, whether they have kids or not. And then something else happens with new characters that are actually the main characters of the movie. And so then Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein fade into the background. I don't know what that story would be, Mm -hmm. but it would be just enough that I would see that the happily ever after that I have envisioned actually happened. Mm -hmm. And then we get this brand new story that's still somehow similar that, that follows this wonderful formula for a rom-com instead of what we normally get. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just want to know that they were all happy in the French kiss universe. Yes. Okay. Nice. <laughs> and if they bring in midichlorians, I swear to God. <laughs> oh, Lonnie. Mm-hmm. Always there for a Star Wars joke. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find us all on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Lani, this was heaps of fun. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. It was really fun uh, hearing you talk all about it. Where can people find you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you can find me at Lonnie Diane Rich on Twitter or at Chipperish or at Chipperish.com. Awesome. I recommend everyone go and check out basically everything. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives access to exclusive content and it helps to fund the shows. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to check out our homepage, eloquentgushing.com, where you can find all the other shows that we put together. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about who framed Roger Rabbit with MC Lars. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And l'amour, c'est marvelous. Pop Culturally Deprived is an eloquent gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.